Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Julia Basha, the director of Boycott, one of the documentaries screening at this year's Minneapolis-St. Paul International Film Festival. Boycott had its world premiere at the 2021 Doc NYC Film Festival and is screened at festivals around the world, including South by Southwest, Big Sky Documentary Film Festival, and will be featured at Hot Docs and Docklands. Julia Basha is a Peabody Award-winning filmmaker and the creative director at Just Vision. She started her filmmaking career in Cairo, where she wrote and edited Control Room, for which she was nominated for the Writers Guild of America Award. She also directed Encounter Point, Boudris, My Neighborhood, and Nayla and the Uprising. For those of you able to attend the festival in Minneapolis, screenings will take place Wednesday, May 18th at 6.30 p.m. at the St. Anthony Main Theater and Thursday, May 19th at 12.30 p.m. at the St. Anthony Main. Julia will be in attendance for both screenings. Or if you're not able to make it to the festival in person but live in Minnesota, the film will be screening virtually at the festival and will be available from May 6th to May 19th. Note that the virtual screening is available for residents of Minnesota only. And now my conversation with Julia Basha, the director of Boycott. Julia Basha, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you, Ken, for having me. You bet. Julia, can you give us a brief logline description of the film? Boycott tells the story of several Americans from different political backgrounds who are challenging laws in their states that are telling people they cannot boycott according to their political views. Why do you make documentary films? I make documentary films because I feel they are one of the most powerful ways of helping people break through some of their preconceived notions, particularly when it comes to issues considered very divisive in our societies. Documentaries have a powerful, beautiful way of telling personal stories and getting beyond what people generally think about when you think about a particular issue. Well, you've certainly picked one here. Yes, I tend to do that. I want to start with the opening of the film. The pre-title sequence shows a montage of several prominent and successful boycotts over the years. Then after the title, there's a sequence that takes place in the Arkansas State Capitol, where we're introduced to the state Senate leader, Bart Hester. I think it's a really interesting and in some ways unexpected way to open the body of the film. Can you just take us through this sequence and tell us why you wanted to start the film with Senator Hester? Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that question. It took us a long time to actually decide how to open the film. The film has three main protagonists whose storyline carries you through the beginning to the end. And for a while, we were attempting to start the film with each one of them. What we realized was that we really needed to start with something that would right away make people ask themselves questions that they weren't, as you said, expected right away in the film to be grappling with. And Senator Hester ended up playing a really important role in the film because he helps answer the question of how these anti-boycott bills were able to pass so successfully, so quickly across the country with bipartisan support, with the vast majority of Americans having no idea that this happened. And the senator ends up carrying us through the film as he goes, he helps us peel the onion of the various layers of lobby groups and reasons of different issue areas that are involved in how these laws got to be passed. So we wanted to introduce him in the beginning so that you could expect that that was going to be part of the film. And how did you find Senator Hester? 
One of our goals with the film right away in the beginning was beyond following the personal stories of individuals who are challenging these bills, we wanted to investigate who was behind the bills. And so I worked with several different journalists, including one of the journalists that show in the film later, the Israeli journalist uh, Itamar Ben-Zaken. And we identified many state legislators who were involved in passing the bill and started contacting them to interview them. Unfortunately, the pandemic hit just as we had started that process of interviewing senators, but we were very lucky because Senator Hester took a couple of months to agree to be part of it, but he agreed in February of 2020. So we just managed to get the interview with him. And despite some reluctance at first, before sitting down to the interview, once he actually sat down to the interview, he was very open with us and also very comfortable with his reasons for supporting the anti-boycott bill. It's interesting the way you shoot that, the way it's framed, the pacing of it. It felt to me like he's almost being set up as the protagonist of the film. That's how you would maybe typically mm. see a protagonist of the film. And he is the first character we meet. But then as he starts to talk, I think there's a sort of unraveling of that status. Yeah, I think a lot happens at the state legislature. And I think Americans are beginning to understand what an important place that is in American life. But there's very little attention paid to it. There is often a lot of press regarding federal laws. There's a lot of lobbying groups in the left and on the right for various issues that work at the federal level. But at the state legislative level, there is often no one that comes to talk to state legislators. They get elected and then they basically operate in a vacuum, except for very specific lobby groups that have smartly organized the entire operation to target state legislators like ALEC which is the American Legislative Exchange Council. And so we really wanted to highlight him because state legislators like him play an enormous role. You know, we were seeing obviously recently with laws limiting the right for reproductive justice for women, laws limiting the rights of children who are LGBTQ. And if people don't start organizing and paying attention to what's happening at the state level, a lot of the progress that we made on so many issues could start unraveling. I think that's a great point about people not being that aware of what's happening in state legislatures. And I will admit that when it comes to anti-boycott legislation, your film was a revelation for me. I had no idea what was going on with this anti-boycott legislation. I was quite surprised to learn that over 30 states have passed these bills. And these aren't just red states like Arkansas. Minnesota passed one in 2017. Since your film is playing in the Minneapolis-St. Paul Festival, I wanted to mention that in case people didn't know. And California, which is my state, which we think of as a liberal state, passed one in 2016 under Democratic Governor Jerry Brown. When did you start tracking on this issue and what made you think that making a feature documentary about this was what you wanted to do? I've been making documentaries with the team at Just Vision for 18 years now. And Just Vision focuses on stories um, about Israel and Palestine that are not getting enough coverage in the media. All of our films up until boycott were about Palestinians and Israelis and took place in the Middle East. So this is our first film about the subject in the U.S., we started tracking legislation targeting the right to boycott since 2014, from before this particular 
law took hold because there were a lot of different attempts made to basically try to to stop the growth of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which is what these laws are actually targeting. So the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement started in 2005 with the call by Palestinian civil society turning to the international community using the model of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions against apartheid South Africa and saying, we have no recourse anymore, meaning we Palestinians have no recourse. There are no international institutions or governments holding Israel accountable. So we must turn to civil society and asking civil society to boycott, organize for divestments, and ask their governments to sanction Israel until they respect Palestinian human rights. That movement since 2005 has been growing. And as the movement grew in the United States, Israel started determining that the BDS movement was one of the greatest threats to Israel and started engaging different groups in America and in Europe to put in place ways to thwart the growth of that movement. So since 2014, they've been trying with different ways. The one version of the law that managed to stick was this one that targeted public contractors and that made Americans who have public contracts with the government be them as teaching trainers in public schools or architects building some kind of uh, state facility or a newspaper that gets advertisement from state agencies having to make a promise that they are not going to boycott Israel. So we had been tracking that, feeling that it was really important to call attention to it as it grew, but it wasn't until we heard of the first plaintiff challenging this law that we decided we had a way in to tell a story that we felt would be really compelling, that wouldn't be dry just about trying to explain a law, but that would really put a human story to what has been a very undocumented development in the country. So let's talk about these three stories at the heart of the film, which also involve lawsuits. There's Alan Leverett, who's founder and publisher of the Arkansas Times, Bahia Amawi of Texas, who's a Palestinian-American speech pathologist, and Mick Jordahl, who advises incarcerated people in Arizona for his work, who's also one of the central stories of the film. How and why did you choose these three stories? So there were about, over the course of the last few years, 10 plaintiffs from different states that launched lawsuits. And we followed six of them, I believe, in the end, over the course of the past three years. Editing documentaries is one of the heartbreaks that we go through where we have to make very difficult choices because... Our documentary film is inherently reductive. It's very hard, although some people have succeeded, to make a film where you have six main characters that we get to follow through the film. So we felt we had to choose three. We decided on the three that we did for two main reasons. One, those three were the stories that we had spent the most time with since the beginning of their lawsuit. So we could really track time passing with them and be present when they won and be present when they lost their cases. And also because they represent very different motivations for having launched their lawsuits. Bahia Maui being Palestinian American and as a speech therapist helping children in the public schools in Austin, she launched her lawsuit because she didn't want to be a contributor to the oppression of Palestinians, some of whom are her family members who still live in the West Bank. So it was an extremely personal decision for her. She's very connected to the Middle East and is engaged in boycotts where she makes a choice that she's not going to buy products that will give money to companies or corporations that are benefiting from the oppression of the Palestinians. Alan Leverett, on the other end of the spectrum, who is the publisher of the Arkansas Times, 
didn't even know that there was such a thing as a call to boycott Israel until it appeared in his contract. Alan gave an interview to Haaretz, which is an Israeli newspaper recently, where he said, I didn't think about boycotting Israel until Arkansas told me not to do so. He was really furious and he has quite a strong personality and believes very firmly on the right of freedom of speech and freedom of the press. He actually grew up conservative. And I think some of the fierceness that he brings to this issue comes from actually holding principled values around free speech, which theoretically is a conservative value, but in this case has not been applied consistently to the issue of Palestine. But he really is someone who applies principles consistently. So launched a lawsuit because he saw the writing on the wall and felt that this was a Pandora's box, that if this law was able to hold, that other rights would start being lost as well. Mick Jordal, who is the third plaintiff in the film, he's a lawyer in Arizona. He decided that he was no longer going to be purchasing products from companies, particularly in his case, he was not buying Hewlett-Packard computers because Hewlett-Packard was at the time engaged in providing technology to checkpoints in the West Bank. And he visited the West Bank with his son when they did a bar mitzvah trip for his son. And he decided that he wanted to make that choice and was very surprised when he learned that his employer felt that he couldn't keep on doing his job based on that political decision that he had made. These are three really compelling stories and three really impressive individuals. There are also three stories that I think are very strategic in terms of engaging with the audience because they do hit these different points or come from these different perspectives. And so that makes me think, as do other choices you made, about how you throughout this process were thinking of the audience. Because I know having and promoting conversations about divisive issues is something very important to you. I think that for me is like the big creative challenge of all the films that I've made because it is so important for us to be able to access different audiences. Obviously, the film is supposed to be for people also who are already in agreement. I believe also that there is your core audience and the film should be made for core audiences as well. But we want to go beyond the core audiences as well and reach people who, to be honest, a lot of time haven't even been exposed to a different way of thinking about this. You know, often it is the case, and we all do that, I do that myself, seek information that reinforce our convictions. And so we often end up consuming the same thing over and over again that just support our cognitive biases. And I think what we at Just Vision try to do with our films is finding the stories. And for us, they're often human stories at the center that will help challenge some of these cognitive biases that people hold. And it can sometimes be the harder story to tell to do that. There can be like, sometimes there's an easier story to tell, but at the end, it is much more rewarding. And I find it a very exciting challenge that I have in some ways. It's like a, it's a limitation that I put on myself that the story actually need to be able to reach different audiences. And even though it's hard, it makes, I think, for films that have much longer shelf lives and reach much broader audiences than they would otherwise. Well, as an aside, I would say as a festival programmer, it's one of the reasons I was so drawn to the film, because I think it does speak to multiple audiences. That's great to hear. So I am intrigued by director's choices in terms of storytelling and structure. I thought it was interesting that it wasn't until about almost 30 minutes into the film that you have someone on camera describing what the BDS movement is and the mm -hmm. reasons why it was started, some of which you talked about here. And the 
person who does this is Vince Warren of the Center for Constitutional Rights. Just curious, why did you decide to hold off until this point mm -hmm. to talk specifically about BDS? And why did you think Mr. Warren was the right person to do it? Great question. So we had a lot of conversations around when to describe what BDS is. And there's a lot of polling that actually we looked into. And the fact is that the vast majority of Americans have no idea what BDS is and have never heard about it. There's a very small number of Americans who feel very strongly about BDS, who's, you know, a lot of particularly these days, Republican conservatives that so much of their political activism in relationship to Israel revolves around fighting BDS and creating an entire narrative around what BDS is. But for the vast majority of Americans, they never heard about that. And we wanted the film to be able to reach those Americans. We didn't want people right away to think, oh, this entire thing is just about one call by Palestinian civil society, particularly because the way the, the law is framed is it's an anti-boycott law. And that's why we framed it around that, because it's saying that you don't actually have the right to boycott. In this case, it's this foreign country, which then obviously unravels in various forms in the film. But we wanted people to right away understand that what's at stake here is a much broader right and have that be very clear for the audience and then introduce gradually bring them in closer to the particularities of the issue area. And in a way, it's also an entry point, right? So you first, we wanted to broaden enough. We couldn't go too far in the film. We felt like 30 minutes was probably the longest we could hold on until explaining it. But we didn't want to close the audience too quickly by people thinking that this maybe wasn't of interest to them because it was just so specifically linked to this issue. And I think also by then we've gotten to meet these characters and start to have a stake in them and in their struggle against these laws. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So one of my favorite scenes in the movie takes place about a third of the way through, and it's another one where you're filming with Senator Bart Hester of Arkansas, and he's walking through the halls of the Arkansas Capitol building, and he runs into his fellow senator, Greg Letting, who's a Democrat. It turns out that this guy voted for the anti-boycott bill, but it wasn't until some constituents of his pushed back on Facebook that he went back and checked, how did I vote on that? Oh, I voted for the anti-boycott bill. But it's amazing. He couldn't remember how he voted. And at first he passes this off and says, we vote on thousands of things and it just wasn't on my radar for whatever reason. But then when asked, presumably by you, if he regrets his vote, he says he regrets not knowing more about it and concedes that if he had, he probably would have voted against it. And then he says, unfortunately, I don't know that many Arkansans even know it's the law. This scene just seems to perfectly encapsulate what's so frustrating about this whole thing. Bills were being passed on a bipartisan basis with very little discussion or attention being paid. And then there's people like this senator here who are surprised to find out what this whole thing means, which is that American citizens are being denied their constitutional right to boycott. It feels very much like you just happened to run into this yes. senator. Can you just take us through what it was like to uh, be filming and then have this yeah. extraordinary interview take place spontaneously. Totally. Yeah. And Greg Letting, as you said, is a Democratic state senator. 
I heard from Alan Leverett, who was the publisher. It's one of the good guys, right? What Alan described him, like he's someone who cares about being a, a public servant. And this is how he dealt with this bill. So if the people who actually are considered as serious public servants are treating this bill like this, it really tells you something about how the system is working and actually not working. And we have since had multiple interactions similar to that, where we have talked to Democratic state senators across the country as the film is shown and, and it's getting picked up and people are talking about it. The Democrats invariably say, I didn't understand what this actually meant. And that moment with Greg, I already knew that this bill had passed with bipartisan support, but obviously at that point, we're still in production. I had no idea what Greg Letting was going to react. I didn't know who he was. As you say, it was a total serendipitous moment where we are following Senator Hester around. And I think Senator Hester was very surprised. I actually don't know how much that comes across in the scene, but he increasingly became very uncomfortable and wanted the whole thing ended because I don't think he expected that Letting would react to the questions the way he did. I think he was expecting to have a bipartisan moment of support for the bill that was going to get recorded. And Greg Letting shattered that expectation pretty quickly. As I mentioned this earlier, I think one of the, the things that really struck me in the making of this film and spending time in legislatures across the country and watching dozens and dozens of hours of proceedings, because a lot of these committee meetings are all available online at the legislatures. And I watched so many of them and the vast majority of them, there are very few citizens showing up to express their position on certain bills. And uh, there are, though, very effective groups, lobby groups that show up every time. And the faces were always the same. And the groups across the country were the same groups. They always had people show up and support the anti-boycott bill. There was very rarely anyone there saying why this was a problem. And so, unfortunately, that's how our system works. If people are lobbied, if you show up, then uh, you're more likely to, to get hurt. And in this case, there was very little mobilization from concerned parties. And so this just passed in 33 states like that. And I would add, there's very little press coverage of it as well. I mean, I was just Googling the Minnesota law in preparation for the interview, and I could find almost nothing in the press about this bill being passed. Yes. A lot of people like you say, this was the first time I heard about it. And some people were like, I consider myself an educated person on this issue. It's amazing. I really haven't seen something at this level of harm get so buried in the press. It was pretty shocking. And so that's very much what we're hoping to break is the silence around this bill. This also seems like an issue in which the Democratic Party is pretty divided. On the one hand, you have folks like Senator Chuck Schumer, our majority leader, who is very pro-Israel and I'm sure supports this anti-boycott legislation. And then you have other Democrats like Senator Letting, who seems open to changing his position once he learns more. I'm just wondering if you're finding that the more Democrats, let's say rank and file Democrats, find out about this issue that they are supporting overturning these bills. The Democratic Party is a really interesting place where this conversation is happening. You see already change since when we started filming to today. In 2017, a federal anti-boycott bill was introduced, and that bill had many Democratic senators 
who signed it, including Chuck Schumer, Kristen Gillibrand of New York, Cory Booker, some very well-known and respected senators were part of it, and many House Democrats also supported it. This year, that bill failed, by the way. So in 2017, they, they tried to pass the federal bill. At the federal level, there's attention to it. So there was a little bit of press, not that much. There was a little bit of press. The ACLU wrote a letter. Some progressive Jewish organizations and Palestinian human rights organizations wrote letters, got engaged. The bill didn't pass. Fast forward to 2021, and a federal bill was introduced last year. And this time, there were no Democrats sponsoring it anymore. So this issue is developing. Where you see the most change is in the Democratic Party. I've been working on this issue of Israel and Palestine now for 17 years, and I can tell you that there has been enormous change, certainly in civil society, but also even now having two members of the House who openly support boycotting Israel would have been unthinkable 17 years ago. Having a presidential candidate like Bernie Sanders, who will voluntarily talk about Palestinian dignity when he's running for office, again, I don't think for a long time would have been possible. And yet these bills are attempting to crush that change. Right? The reason why we're seeing this is very much because there is an attempt now, because it's becoming harder and harder to win the debate, there's an attempt to prevent the debate from happening. And I think Democrats, as they learn more about the nature of these bills, and that this is a kind of bill you see in an authoritarian regime. It's not something you see in a, in a democracy. And I think at first it was easier to vote for it than against it. But now that people are understanding the, the consequences consequences of it and how it goes beyond whether you want to get engaged in the Middle East issue. It actually goes into issues related to fighting against climate change. There's now bills that are using the same template of the anti-BDS bill to say that you cannot engage with the government if you are boycotting fossil fuels. There's another version that says you cannot now boycott the firearms industry. This is the Pandora's box, right? Now that you open this, it can be used to any issue area. And the Democrats are in a very tough position because how are they going to now argue that this is a violation of the First Amendment if they all voted for this. So exactly. I, I think that's going to be a really tricky place to have to argue from, but hopefully they will figure out how to do it. So one of the things that you expose in the film is the role of the Israeli government, which is funding the anti-boycott movement through various entities. And you highlight the work of an Israeli journalist who exposed what the Netanyahu government was doing. So this is another revelation in the film for many of us, that the Israeli government is very much an active player in this situation and is working in concert with some evangelical groups as well. At one point, Alan Leverett describes it in his inimitable way, he calls it a weird marriage of cynicism and convenience between the evangelical right and lobbyists for Israel. Can you talk about how you went about connecting these dots and why yeah. these interconnections and the Israeli government's role specifically is so troubling? When I started with the film four years ago now, I contacted a journalist called Itamar Benzaken, who's an investigative journalist in Israel for an organization called The Seventh Eye, which is a media watchdog in Israel, because I knew he was really interested in understanding what the Ministry of Strategic Affairs was up to, which was a ministry created in the Netanyahu government 
tasked with fighting the movement to hold Israel accountable through boycotts, divestment, and sanctions. And the government was attempting to protect the ministry from having to provide any actual information into its activities by giving it the kind of privacy that is given to the sort of Department of Defense and to military activities. And Tamar was trying to break through and and actually get some data. So we stayed in touch. I followed him and we were always talking to each other until three years later, as we were editing and really almost finishing the film at that point, there was a change in government in Israel and Netanyahu lost power. And the government that came into power said, okay, here, and gave Tamar all the documents that he had been waiting for three years. Tamar was very generous in allowing us to reveal that in our film. And I think it's a big surprise to me how little play that has gotten. Tamar published all his revelations in Hebrew on the seventh eye. There was one journalist in America who wrote a little bit about it, Aideen Pink, who was actually has left journalism to go into rabbinical school. But other than him, there was no one who actually covered the story. I very much hope that the film can spark some interest in journalists because the film just really, it touches the tip of the iceberg in terms of what needs to be looked at. Because what the film is just suggesting is that there were ways in which American organizations received money from foreign governments that could potentially mean that they went around FARA, the foreign agency that requires you to register if you're receiving money from a foreign government. And so I hope that American journalists will pick that up and look a lot more into how this is happening, because unfortunately, the work of concert, this Israeli organization that did the funding of American organizations, is now continuing through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Israel. There's also this intermingling of politics and religion with evangelical Christians and Israeli Jews that is just discomforting to some of us. This was something that we very much wanted to highlight because, again, I think many people are not aware the degree to which increasingly the Israeli government relies on evangelical Christian groups and lobby groups to keep its grip on the way that Americans see what's happening in the Middle East. I think there are quotes, and I'm not going to be able to get those quotes perfect, but there are quotes by Israeli officials implying that they are losing the support of Jewish Americans, as increasingly many people start questioning the ways that the Israeli government works in relationship to Palestinians, and that they therefore need to build a new base of support. And Christian evangelicals are increasingly that base of support for Israel in America. Obviously, the Montgomery bus boycott is a hugely important event in terms of American history, the history of boycotts, Martin Luther King's career. It's in the film and it's really well done. I thought it was interesting that it came pretty late in the game. So you held it and then Mm -hmm. like an hour in, boom, you hit us with it. That is such an emotional historical moment, I think, for many Americans. And we very much wanted to make the connection to people that boycotts were critical to the civil rights movement. It was one of the principal tools used at the time. So helping just people make that connection, because often if you just talk in a vacuum, your right to boycott, it cannot be immediately obvious why they should be paying attention to this when there is so much on fire around them. But when you think about some of the movements and progress that I think many of us feel the proudest historically, be it the civil rights movement, be it the fight against apartheid South Africa, 
be it Cesar Chavez and the right of farm workers. So much of the progress that we've made as society to become more inclusive and equal have relied on boycotts. And so it is a tool that we want to keep for ourselves for the future so that we can continue making our communities more equal and more inclusive. Let's get back to our three main characters. So Alan, Bahia, and Mick in their court cases. Alan in Arkansas is not successful initially in U.S. District Court, but then the ACLU appeals on his behalf based on a unanimous ruling in the Supreme Court case of NAACP versus Claiborne Hardware. And the U.S. Court of Appeals agrees with the ACLU's argument, and so Alan wins on appeal. My question is... A unanimous Supreme Court decision like this, with such clear and unambiguous language saying that boycotts are protected political expression under the First Amendment, seems like such a slam dunk that it's hard to imagine that any of these laws could stand up in court. But I know it's never that easy. And so can you tell us why things aren't as black and white as it may appear when it comes to the courts? You know, the ACLU, I think, felt and and I think still feel fairly confident overall, as you said, there's a really clear precedent here that sets boycotts as protected under the First Amendment. Unfortunately, one of the outcomes of four years under the Trump administration was that Trump did have an influence on a lot of courts around the country, including appellate courts, and as we all know very well, the Supreme Court. And even though free speech is, let's say, historically, I guess you have to say now, a conservative principle. When it comes to Israel and Palestine, there seems to be for some an exception to that. And so that does open up the question of how some of these judges, many of whom were heavily criticized by the American Bar Association as unfit to take those positions unprepared, ideologically motivated, including in the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, which was where Allen went to at first. He ended up winning in the first panel two to one. So two judges sided with him, one didn't. The one that did not side with Alan Leverett is a Trump appointee who came from working for a congressman who was one of the authors of the federal anti-boycott bill. So this was a highly politicized person who actually was involved in the federal version of this bill that he now has to judge. So there was a lot of people saying he needs to excuse himself from this case, but increasingly judges are not excusing themselves from cases that they probably should. The Eighth Circuit was always considered one of the most conservative appellate courts in America, and with some of Trump appointees, uh, became increasingly so. What happened in Allen's case is that even though he won two to one, now the entire Eighth Circuit has decided to rehear the case, which is fairly rare for that to happen. Generally, because I believe it requires a unanimous decision by all the 12 judges of the appellate court that they're going to be reviewing it. The ACLU seems to be skeptical that it's going to go their way, but they have already said that if they lose, that they are going to be requesting the Supreme Court to review the case. Do we have any idea when the full circuit court's going to hear it? So it can happen at any moment. As I've learned over the course of making this film, it's quite amazing how you have no idea when people are going to make these decisions. All of a sudden, it just drops. It could happen tomorrow or it could take a few months still. With the other two cases, as we see in the film, Bahia does win in Texas and so does Mick in Arizona. These seem like happy endings, at least for now. But what struck me is, you know, as I was feeling good about these cases in the film was how these three folks sacrificed a lot 
to take on the state. They lost income. They put a ton of time into this. They put themselves in the public eye when maybe they didn't want to. And all of them were faced with losing the ability to make a living doing their life's work. That's a huge thing to potentially take away from somebody. Can you talk about the sacrifices these people made, the struggles they faced, and the support they received along the way? I think one of the things that really attracted me to this lawsuit were that none of the plaintiffs are self-described activists, right? They are all people who have a profession that they were able to build for themselves as something that they love doing and that supports them and their families. And they didn't ask for this. Mick actually talked about how he really didn't want to be the plaintiff on this because he's a lawyer. He was like, maybe I can support a lawsuit on this. He tried to find other plaintiffs, but nobody was willing to do it. Because as you said, you expose yourself to so much by going public with a lawsuit against your employer. You're threatening your reputation as a worker who's going to sue the employer. You're really jeopardizing your professional career. And on an issue that is so divisive as Israel and Palestine, you are opening yourself up for animosity from people in your community that might not even have known what you did as a private citizen politically. What the government is doing here is asking American citizens to make a public statement around a very controversial issue in America. And all of these people were ready to say, no, we're not going to sign this. And many people reference how this brings memories of McCarthy era, the, the witch hunts and the people having to make statements and promises and the way in which thought was controlled and ideas couldn't be shared. And if you said the wrong thing, you now were considered communist. And, and there were so many concepts to you and your family. As a filmmaker, those are the stories that I love telling. All of my films have dealt with very difficult issues, but the people at the center of my films are all extraordinarily courageous in challenging those problematic systems. And I love spending time with them and just reminding myself of how beautiful we can be and how many inspiring people there are out there. I want to ask you about the last scene of the movie, which shows Bahia after she wins her case, marching in support of Palestinian rights, which to me was a really powerful exclamation point that said, this isn't just about supporting people's right to engage in boycotts, but it's also about what people can do with those rights when they're allowed to use their rights to the fullest extent. Boycotts are one of the fundamental ways that we have at our disposal to change what's wrong in our society. Can you talk about your decision to end the film with this scene? One of the things that happened in that scene is that we intercut Bahia going to the protest with her family with a speech that Brian House, the ACLU lawyer, gives at an event in Brooklyn that he attended, where he talks about how our rights are not something that can be taken away by governments or the Supreme Court or presidents, that rights live in the hearts of the people. And it's only by exercising these rights day in and day out that we're going to keep them. I really love that because this is a film that does follow lawsuits. And I felt it was really important not to leave people with the idea that all that we can do is go to the court and whatever the court decides, then that's it, game over. Because the truth is that we don't know what's going to happen with these lawsuits. And unfortunately, the courts have become so politicized that we can't rely on that the way that maybe we like to think we can. And so I really wanted to end the film showing what it looks like for us to exercise that right. I like the word exercise because it's a muscle, right? The muscle of exercising your right. 
And we really can't let that get, what's the word, atrophied, because that's all we have is that it's in us. And so long as we believe we have that and we exercise it and we go out there and we demand and we show up and we turn out when legislators are coming together and we express our opinion, how we feel about things, that's the only way we'll get to keep that right. And that's the way we get to continuously improve and grow in our democracy. It's interesting watching your film in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the calls for boycotts of Putin and the oligarchs and Russia, and then seeing some of those boycotts happen. I'm curious, what have you been thinking about as you've been reading these headlines about what's going on vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine in relation to your film and to the issues around BDS? I think if anyone had any doubts about the importance of boycott divestments and sanctions as a tool that we need to preserve, the Russian invasion of the Ukraine should have shown very clearly how critical they are. This is a situation where we cannot go to war because there is nuclear weapons involved. Turns out the only thing we can do is boycott, divest, and sanction. That's all we're talking about here. Increasingly more boycotts, increasingly more sanctions, increasingly more divestments. Those are the levers that we have in a situation where we cannot go to war. And to me, it just emphasizes how critical it is for us to make sure that we are preserving those. Bahia Maui, the speech pathologist in Texas, wrote a, an opinion piece for the Austin American Statesman where she said, I have spent spent the last four years trying to defend the right of people to be able to boycott. And my governor, and she actually said, I can't say my governor. I remember that edit specifically. The governor, she asked, she wanted to say, the governor has been fighting against that right. But he just called for all the stores to be empty of Russian products. So what is it here? Which way do you want this? We can't say that in this situation, you can boycott. In that situation, you cannot boycott. Like, how are we going to be deciding? Is the government going to be deciding that now for citizens? What they can do and what they cannot do? I don't think that was ever anyone's ideas of what American democracy is about. By way of an update, I think when the film was made, there were 33 states with these laws. Where are we now? A smaller number or a bigger number? Or what's the trend at this point? Yeah, we kept updating over the course of making the film. When principal photography started, it was at 25. So it went up to 33. There are now many more states with the fossil fuels and the firearms bill. And there's the federal anti-boycott bill that was reintroduced. They keep trying to pass the federal version. There's also a federal fossil fuels bill that was recently introduced. And one place to also look things up is a website called Palestine Legal that also has a way of looking up these laws and also other ways that advocating for Palestinian rights are getting suppressed because the anti-boycott laws are just one of the ways in which this is being done. For people who have watched the film and want to get involved in some way, can you offer any specific places to go or things they can do? I would encourage everybody to visit the production's organization's website. It's called Just Vision. That's justvision.org, J-U-S-T-V-I-S-I-O-N.org. There are some beginning resources there, including we're going to be adding where people can look up all of these laws, where they exist, 
where are the fossil fuels, where are the firearms laws so that people can have an easy place to look up because it can be hard to find it because journalists are not covering it. So we want to have a, a hub there. And there's also other resources for people to increasingly just learn more depending on which way they want to get involved. But we also encourage people to ask their journalists, why aren't they covering this issue? And also let their elected officials know how they feel about it. Well, Julia, I want to thank you so much for bringing this critically important issue to our attention and doing it in such a way that it's an incredibly compelling story with incredible people who are on the front lines of this issue, often at great personal sacrifice, and for engaging us in a conversation that I think really is inviting to everyone, whatever your political persuasion. So thank you so much. Congratulations on the film and really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you so much, Ken. Do you have a hidden gem, a film that you don't think gets the attention it deserves? Yes, there's a beautiful short documentary called Elena by Petra Costa, which many people know her from The Edge of Democracy. And before that, her first short documentary was about her sister who suffered from mental health issues. And I think it's very difficult to do documentaries about mental health, but Petra did a beautiful, touching job with it. And I highly recommend people watch it. I love it when people recommend shorts. They, <laughs> they don't get the attention they deserve. No, they don't, exactly, exactly. Sure.